What is going on? Welcome to the program. Happy Tuesday. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. WBT. WBT. 704-570-1110 and uh, 1-800-WBT-1110 are the phone numbers. If you'd like to weigh in on the program, uh, you can also email Pete at thepetecallenershow.com or hit me up on Twitter at Pete Callender. Uh, a lot to get to. We've got House Speaker uh, Tim Moore uh, joining the program later on, uh, top of the next hour, I believe, 1 o'clock. And, uh, but I want to start with um, the Real Estate Attorney Employment Act. Well, it's the full Real Estate Attorney Employment Act. I mean, that's not the name of it. It's going by the name, the Unified Development Ordinance in Charlotte. But I foresee a lot of work for real estate lawyers in Charlotte. This is going to be it's going to be a boon for a lot of these folks. Why do I say that? Well, you heard a lot of the debate, and I watched the city council meeting last night, so you didn't have to. You're welcome. I'm a giver. So uh, you watch the comments, and you see the arguments being made, and um, there are a couple different paths here. But first off, Ed Driggs, city councilman, Republican, he made the point that there are a lot of things in the UDO, the Unified Development Ordinance, which is sort of like the the master plan for all development decisions from zoning and infrastructure and bike lanes, like all of this stuff falls under the UDO. It is the central planner's central plan, okay? It is the penultimate in central plannery. So you have this UDO, and, and Driggs didn't necessarily disagree with a lot of the stuff that's in there. I mean, a lot of the stuff is already on the books to begin with, but it unifies all the ordinances, and it... You know, it, it harmonizes policy and the like. Now, one of the big, or, and Driggs pointed out that um, at the outset of the process, there seemed to be, and I don't know where he got this idea from, but there seemed to be a bit of a vibe, uh, a tone, if you will, that we're going to get those people in that part of town. And that that poisoned the well a bit. You're trying to get buy-in from different people, different city council members, but there is this vibe going of, we're going to stick it to the wedge. Do you know what the wedge is? Right? The wedge is Southeast Charlotte. This is where the rich folk live. (laughs) This is where... Uh, you know, folks would send their kids to Myers Park. Hi, I'm not, okay, uh, these are just, I'm just, I'm joking. I do not count that as the rich folks living there. There are a lot of rich folks that live all along the river. They live all along the lakefronts and such. There are, there are rich people everywhere. There are big homes all over town. But the wedge, particularly when Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools was doing all of the, the busing, race-based busing for so long, the wedge was an area that, got a lot of, uh, shall we say, dispensation. There wasn't, the, a lot of the busing efforts did not, um, did not so negatively impact. There was a story, I'll tell you the story. Um, I don't even remember where, uh, who told it to me. Um, but the story was they had recruited, the city had recruited a business to town. And the business leader was told, make sure you tell your your folks, 
that if they want to avoid all of the craziness of Charlotte Mecklenburg schools and the busing stuff, get them into the wedge. Tell your folks to look in the wedge, the southeast part of town. And the CEO or whatever forgot to do so. And uh, he had people in his company that were buying homes all over the place. And then they encountered the CMS busing fiasco as it was. And this is, you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, before it was all unwound by the courts. And um, his employees got so mad at the schools that they were having to put their kids on a bus, ride the bus for an hour and a half each way in order to achieve racial balance in the schools. And the employees got mad and uh, they, the uh, company ended up giving them like uh, credits to pay for uh, private schools. So when CMS moved away from the busing stuff, uh, because the court told them that they were no longer, uh, they were no longer under the busing order because they had eliminated the, the last vestiges of racism or something in the school district, which was the, that was not what the school board was arguing, actually. The school board at the time, which was, I think, majority, I think at the time of the case, uh, Arthur Griffin, um, Wilhelmina, or I'm not sure if Rembert was on the, she may have been on the body at that point, um, but Vilma Leek, George Dunlap, uh, it was a majority Democrat board. And I think at one point, majority African-American leadership. And they were making this argument that they were still racist. You couldn't trust them. <laughs> so uh, the court did not believe that and lifted the court-ordered busing. Uh, and then, of course, the Democrats tried to continue the race-based busing, but to use as a surrogate uh, free and reduced lunch status. Okay, and, and the fights ensued, and then there was overcrowding of school, and the, and the school board wouldn't build schools in fast-growing parts of the county. Because they figured, well, you know what? If we don't build schools up in like North Mech, then we'll, there'll be so many kids that we can bus them. See, they're always trying to bus them. They're always trying to bus. And all busing did, by the way, was um, it just masked the, the disparity, the, the achievement gap, which I guess you don't call it that anymore. They have a new name for it, the equity gap or something, whatever. They rebranded, so it's no longer the achievement gap. But it masked those scores and it made all of the schools sort of look the same when you looked at test scores. But what it was doing was actually harming uh, free and reduced lunch kids, poor kids. It was uh, harming minority kids. They weren't getting the kind of education uh, that other schools and other families were. And it was being masked because the grades at the school looked better. Okay. So all of that is to say that uh, there's an air, this wedge area in Charlotte is perceived to be where the power brokers live. And a lot of them do. Um, but it's perceived where that's all the money they're, they, they control everything. And again, that may all have been true, uh, back in the days when Hugh McCall was still running bank of America. Not sure if it's still the case now, but there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of big properties, lawns that are like, you know, 20 acres or something. And all I look at those lawns and I'm like, man, I would not want to mow that. Um, but there are a lot of people, I think, that were pursuing the unified development ordinance as a way to stick it to those gentry folks. I think that was and Ed Driggs didn't say that, but that's what I took from his comments talking about this tone, this vibe about going after certain parts of town. Slight problem, unintended consequence maybe, 
But when you go after the uh, uh, the single family uh, housing by zoning designation, there are a lot of single family homes that are designated as such. They're not in any kind of like a homeowners association, so there's no protection there for that zoning. And when you get rid of that zoning, now all of a sudden the properties that like one that I used to have in East Charlotte is a fifth of an acre, small little brick house, my first home I built off of Eastway or I I, I bought um, off of Eastway Drive. That property now becomes very attractive for a developer to come in, knock it down, and put in multifamily. And so you're going to start seeing sort of this the in this this mid ring, right? The old suburbs of Charlotte. You're going to start seeing a lot of tearing down of those neighborhoods and replacing the single family homes with multifamily. Can the infrastructure su- uh, support it? Eh, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. If you lived in any of those parts of town, uh, you know the newer parts, they get bigger sidewalks and all that. The middle ring. The original suburbs, the little villages, Elizabeth, Plaza Midwood, all of those little areas, they're about to get they're about to get a major renovation. It's not going to look the same. And a lot of your uh, fragile neighborhoods that right now are owner occupied, you've just now made it way more likely that those people can cash out and move away. That was one of the concerns several of the council members had, Democrat and Republican. So This is why I call it a real estate attorney employment act. The way to protect your homes is going to be to get it into the deeds. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So the city council, in a 6-4 to vote, it would have been 6-5, to but... Councilwoman Johnson was not there. She got COVID. And because the governor's ED went away, uh, you're not allowed to do Zoom meetings anymore. The emergency declaration, state of emergency, it ended. Governor Cooper ended it after like 880-something days. And during that entire course of time, uh, the city council did not figure out a way to do hybrid meetings or zoom in meetings or anything like that. And so, uh, yeah, so uh, she was out, but she would have, I think the, uh, the conventional wisdom is she would have voted no on this. And the Democrats all cited that the voted no on the unified development ordinance, which is according to the Charlotte observers, Gina Contino, uh, 685 page rule book for what can be built where in Charlotte. I think it would have been a six, five vote. Democrats uh, cited gentrification concerns, gentrification concerns. They're afraid that these neighborhoods on the west side and on the east side, but let's be fair, it's going to be all over the place. Anywhere where the older neighborhoods are, are at risk. Because why? They're not protected any longer by the zoning classifications that the city promised them they would be built under, right? For decades, the city of Charlotte had zoning classifications. I think it was R3, right, which was three residential units per lot. That was the designation. They changed it while I went away on timeout, but whatever. Um, 
That was always a standard. And the Chamber of Commerce was always trying to get that thing changed. Maybe it was R4. They wanted to go to like R6 or something. They always wanted more density. They wanted to be able to build tighter. And look, I'm a lowercase L libertarian. I am for people building what they want on their own properties. And what that has meant, though, over time is that there were a lot of these master developments that came in. Sorry, can I say master development? Is that is that not allowed anymore? These larger planned communities. And what they do is they protect those properties with their deed restrictions, homeowners associations, that sort of thing. You're ex- like my first house off Eastway Drive, I, th- there was no homeowners association. There's no deed protection in the, I- I- attached to the property that says you can't build anything other than a single family home on this lot. And so the way to protect your neighborhoods, folks, is to go out and get people in the neighborhood to enter into a mutual organization and hire a real estate attorney and protect the nature of your neighborhood by saying you cannot build more than one residential unit, owner-occupied unit, per existing lot. Right? I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Don't take my advice, but I I don't know how to write it, but there are ways to do so. You would have to go and get all of the people in your neighborhood to sign on to this to willingly change the deed. It's going to cost money, but that is the way to do it. So who's left? So if you're going to have neighborhoods in in the wedge that can afford to do that, are you going to have neighborhoods outside the wedge who may be of a lower income level? Are they going to be able to afford to do that? No, of course not. I just got a message here. Been on Camp Green lately. They're building $400,000 homes there. It's already being gentrified. Right. Yeah. But remember, like, gentrified just means, well, all right, I'll get into what gentrified means. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, if you can believe what they define a word as anymore, uh, they define gentrification as, quote, a process in which a poor area... The city experiences an influx of middle class or wealthy people who renovate and rebuild homes and businesses and which often results in an increase in property values and the displacement of earlier, usually poorer residents. So it's not necessarily a racial thing, but (laughs) it's kind of a racial thing, too. I remember seeing. Somebody had developed a scale of gentrification, and you know you've achieved peak gentrification when you see the uh, single blonde female walking a dog through the streets like uh, around uh, Moorhead and Freedom Drive. I've been in this part of town on west side of Charlotte here. I've been working at WBT on and off now for you know since 1999, and this was not a part of town. I mean, it was a good part of town if you're trying to like you know dispose of a body. We, we assume there were a great many of them in the kudzu growth all around the perimeter of our uh, property here. Or if you wanted to, uh, uh, you know, uh, participate in activities at the toll house. They rented by the hour, rooms by the hour. And then they would be raided pretty regularly. So uh, it, was, uh, it was not a great, a, not a safe part of town. But a, a long time ago, it was, right, Camp Green area. And the Camp Green area all around, uh, you know, between 
Freedom Drive and Wilkinson Boulevard. It's kind of funny to me how I hear people like I just um, uh, Jen says, you know, Camp Green uh, area uh, on Camp Green. They're building four hundred thousand dollar homes there. It's already being gentrified. And she's exactly right. I saw it on South Tryon as well. They're putting up these like three story. I don't understand. Why does anybody want to live in a three-story townhome like that? I get it. You can save on the square footage cost per square foot by going up, you know? But when you pull in and then you got like a bedroom downstairs and then you have like a living quarters in the second floor and then you got a bedroom all the way upstairs, like that's a lot of stair climbing. Like if you forget something on your way out the door and it's up in your bedroom, that's – I'm just saying, ranch life is for me. I, I was in a two-story, and now I'm in a uh, – in my last apartment, actually, was up uh, two flights of stairs. Um, we've lived we, we've lived up in the multi-story uh, dwellings, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. Ranch life is fantastic. It's just <laughs> a straight line. Around. But that takes up more square footage. Anyway, um, Camp Green area, that was built, if I remember correctly, right around in the World War II era, uh, era right? And you have you you had a displacement that occurred there before. Everybody wants to believe and pretend that history starts now, as if the people who are living in the Camp Green area that they've been there forever. Well, they weren't there forever. There were people there before them, right? And those people left. They sold. They rented their homes out. Whatever. They died. Somebody came in and bought the home and turned it into a rental property. Whatever. So, but because. But because the the neighborhood, quote, went down, right, because you had poorer people moving in, not keeping up with their properties, you had crime that uh, infested the area. They used to do uh, prostitution stings all the time over here. Didn't they bust one of the local reverends somewhere around here in one of those stings? You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there were this this area around the station is not unlike many other areas around the country. The Bronx is another example. My dad grew up in the Bronx, working class. And then as people could afford to move out of the Bronx and they could get their own piece of heaven, they could get a big chunk of land and they valued open space. And the trade-off of a long commute was worth it because they got a bigger house to raise a family. They got more yard and they didn't have to worry about crime and the sounds of the city and all of the hustle bustle and whatever. But that's that that was okay. Or so you know, without making it racial, but this was always referred to right as white flight. So when whites leave, that's bad. When whites return, that's also bad. Kind of getting the feeling <laughs> there isn't the right answer here. Now the dictionary does not define it as a white-only thing, a racial thing. It's talking about middle class and, and wealthier. But there's always a racial component to this stuff, right? Um, yeah, so here you go. Eric just says, I'm not sure where Merriam-Webster got this definition from, Pete. Everyone knows gentrification is white people moving into a place. All right, and if they decide to leave, that's white flight. In all cases, it is, of course, racism. Trademark. Capital R, racism. Right. But this is, I thought, like when I moved into a house, is the expectation that if I move into, like I bought a 900 square foot house, I bought it for like 80 something thousand dollars, and it was a wreck. It was an absolute wreck. They had, uh, they had painted all of the ceilings blue. 
all of the ceilings and a couple of the rooms as well. They glued mirrors onto the walls. They put tile, and I'm using that term loosely. It was plastic, plastic tiles that they glued onto or maybe snapped onto the wall in the bathroom. I had to replace the toilet. I had to gut the whole kitchen. I mean, I did a lot of work on this little house. Was I not supposed to do that? Is that wrong? Because now it's funny because that house got sold, I think, two or three times since I sold it. And it's now, it was listed last time I saw it, it was like $300,000. It's 900 square feet. And they actually eliminated one of the three bedrooms and made a larger living area. Two bedrooms, one bath. That's what it is. And with a laundry room on the back porch. You actually have to leave the house and go out onto the back porch and go into the utility closet where the breakers are and use the washing machine and dryer in there. That's old Charlotte. So was I not supposed to fix the place up? Were the other people that bought the house afterwards, were they not supposed to fix the place up? And everywhere around that house, except for the houses on both sides of it, either side, because I know who owns both of them, and they're not, they're not selling. Um, the Everywhere else around the block, they've all been torn down and massive homes built. And that's what's going to come as long as the economy and people still want to move there. Now, at some point, they may not anymore. And that's how you end up with really big homes that fall into disrepair. And you walk by these homes, and you're like, huh, I wonder what happened to that home. Well, that's what happens, right? Family dies off. They don't want to rent it, or it just stays in the property, gets tied up in the courts or something. But then whole neighborhoods go that way. I, I'm, there's a show on, um, on one of the channels, uh, one of the do-it-yourself channels that Christy got, uh, got to watch, and I see a couple of the episodes, and it's, these two guys, they go to Detroit, and they're buying properties for like $40,000, $30,000. And some of these homes are beautiful old homes. So they were obviously built when a lot of people wanted to live there and people had money, right? They had money to keep and build a nice home. And then something happened. But I'm supposed to believe that the last 10 years, the last 20 years, and the disrepair the home is in now, that that's the natural state of that home, and anything that might jeopardize a person's ability to buy that rundown home and live in squalor, I'm supposed to believe that that's wrong. I don't. I don't believe that's wrong. Now, that being said, uh, for the folks who, uh, like uh, the city council members who are like, well, you know, we're going to keep on uh, tweaking it and making changes and this and that, This is the central planner's fatal conceit, you know, that they can figure out what the market needs, what we should do. There was a very interesting uh, study done out of the University of California, Berkeley, the death of downtown. And of course, you know, their answer is more government. (laughs) We need to get recession proof industries like government. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, But the things that they talk about, by the way, Charlotte is mentioned here. Surprisingly enough, a lot of people aren't interested in moving back into the urban cores as quickly as they are trying to get outside the urban cores. Why do you think that is? Could it be it's not strictly based on housing policy, folks? It might not just be housing policy. That's part of it. But it might have something to do with, I'm just spitballing here. Crime? No, I know. For real. No, seriously. It may have something to do with people's inability to feel safe when they walk out their front door because that's why i left center city
The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic renewed long-term debates about the future of downtowns in North America. The last 40 years have seen the rise of suburban malls and downtowns, a back-to-the-city movement, and new patterns of remote work. In the process, many downtowns have transitioned from daytime-only office zones to lively 24-hour mixed-use spaces. But with the... And Charlotte is a perfect example of this. When I first came... Uh, down south from New York, I was uh, I graduated high school, came down to Rock Hill, South Carolina, and they had just got through a big fight to put a roof over the downtown area. They were literally going to put a roof over downtown and turn it into a mall to compete with malls because there wasn't anything downtown. And Charlotte is a classic example where uh, the old joke was you could roll a bowling ball down trade and try on at 530 and not hit anything. Well, okay, except maybe a prostitute. Anyway, the city leaders, center city partners, right, the uh, the uptown crowd, the Charlotte City Council, county commission, just poured tons of money, and the business community poured tons of money into making center city Charlotte. I mean, even we call it uptown. We call it center city. That was all part of the rebranding effort. Nobody from... Rock Hill ever went to Charlotte. The only time we drive to Charlotte was to sell plasma and go to Infinity's End. That was the only thing that was up here when I was in college down there from like 92 to whenever. Doesn't matter. Why are you asking all these questions? Anyway, with the initial shock of the pandemic, downtowns emptied out as people were forced to stay at home. And even as life has gradually returned to malls and neighborhood commercial corridors, the urban core is no longer a bustling center of activity. This trend has led many to wonder, is it finally the death of downtown? This is from the Institute of Governmental Studies. It's out of the University of California, Berkeley. Researchers typically measure downtown viability by three factors. One is office vacancy rates. Another is uh, public transportation ridership. And another is retail spending. The growing availability of mobile phone data containing all of your locations, right? That Now we have a new way to measure downtown activity. So they did so with 62 downtown areas. The lowest, so and they're measuring this versus activity level prior to the pandemic. So the lowest in recovery, San Francisco. 31% of its pre-pandemic level has returned. That's it. So two-thirds are not there. Um, the best, overperformance, Salt Lake City, 155%. They're, they're performing better than they were before the pandemic. Key factors influencing recovery rates for downtowns are population and business densities, commuter mode shares, particularly high car use. Oh, really? Not buses. Hmm. Along with the presence of industry sectors that are continuing to support remote work, such as tech and finance. If you, a lot of these people who work in tech and finance, they don't need to come into the office any longer, right? To survive in the new era of remote work, downtowns will need to diversify their economic activity and land uses. Um, economic activity and employment tend to uh, cluster in the dense core of a city region because it facilitates access to labor and to markets. And today's regions now have a couple different Nodes, suburbanization created new centers. And this, again, Charlotte's a good example. Uh, Myers Park, Elizabeth, 
right? These were neighborhoods that were the original suburbs. They were they were outside of downtown, which was originally I mean, downtown was originally built and it was a bustling center of economic activity. And then it kind of fell out of fashion. Nobody wanted to go there anymore. People wanted their own homes. And so they moved farther out. But farther out was, you know, <laughs> you had to be able to walk to work still. So, uh, you know, you have these little, quote, neighborhoods, these little suburbs, I should say, uh, around the center city, uh, center city, these these middle ring communities. Even though a lot of downtowns have added new housing, offices continue to dominate, comprising about 71% of real estate in downtown areas. That's probably got to change. There, there was a massive migration out of cities during the pandemic. Surveys show the shift will be permanent for up to half of the workforce in cities that are large and congested, uh, congested like New York, or those that are powered by the tech sector, like San Francisco. Now, obviously, there are some other problems, like the affordable housing crisis that occurs in your downtown areas. And they suggest that downtowns are going to struggle to recover from the pandemic due to their disproportionate share of business closures, the lessening demand for downtown real estate due to remote work, and challenges associated with the loss of business travel and the rise of e-commerce. Small and mid-sized cities may actually benefit from the influx of new population. The pandemic is likely to have a disproportionate impact on older industrial or quote-unquote legacy cities. So how does Charlotte rank on this? Glad you asked. Charlotte has recovered, according to the Berkeley analysis, their recovery quotient is 58%. 58%. It's kind of in the middle of the pack, but that's just the downtown core. If you look at the entire city, it's at 85%, which means what? The activity is moved outside of the urban core, the uptown center city area. All right. North Carolina Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, will join me next. 